Hello, everyone, and welcome to Aftermath, the podcast for Mathies. I'm your host, Ifas, and with me, we have my co-host, Sarah. Hi, everybody. We have a treat here for you today. So one of the original premises of Aftermath was actually just an excuse to talk to some of our math friends and see what they did with their degrees. Well, today, we're bringing in our very first guest, Vincent Chan. Like us, he was also a president of the Pure Math, Applied Math, Combinatorics, and Optimization Club at the University of Waterloo. And, but now, he is currently teaching at a private school called Rennert School in Calgary, Alberta. Welcome to the show! Thanks for having me. This is great. I've listened to the first few episodes, and I'm very excited to be a part of this. Yay, a fan! <laughs> I think it's a prerequisite for having anyone on the show, though, that you have to listen to it. <laughs> All right, on with the show. So Vince, I heard that you and Sarah met through math competitions. Uh, did you also start yeah. learning math at the age of five? <laughs> no, I'm not as impress- impressive as Sarah is, but uh, yeah, I did a few math competitions back in the day. I think I started math competitions right around junior high school, and that's probably the first time I met Sarah was when I got invited to the junior math uh, competition banquet. And Sarah was one of the top students there. And then to add, you know, to add salt to the wound, I guess, they're like, and Sarah's also younger than everyone. So there you have it, you know. So, yeah, it was fantastic to to see such amazing talent from younger generation. And then I met Sarah again at the Waterloo Math Camp when I was in grade 11. And so when I saw him, like, that name sounds really familiar. Oh, wait, she's from Okotoks. So, yeah, it 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 was nice to, you know, close that loop and then. Again, I saw Sarah at Waterloo, and then uh, we all—we uh, were both the presidents at the same time. In fact, we were co-presidents for for one year, so that was kind of nice. I love that. Uh, this this is great. We could make this entire episode all about me <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's memories of me. I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, Vince, I get this question a lot, so I'm going to ask you now. Uh, what was your experience with math math camp, and is it someone that something that anyone can go to? That's a great question. Uh, I, I was very surprised I got the invitation to begin with because although I was invested in math competitions, it was never a really serious pursuit for myself. And so getting the chance to go to a math camp was kind of exciting and out of out of the blue, I guess. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I met a lot of really good friends, some of them I still talk to today, and I got exposure to a lot of really interesting people. So Obviously, a lot of these students are really into math and they love math competitions. They're very good at it. But at the same time, I got, a, I got to meet a few people who weren't really into math, which is kind of interesting to see how they got into the math camp kind of thing. And at the same time, I got to meet a lot of really interesting math professors. And in fact, it was the first math camp I went to that really convinced me that I should go into math. That's crazy. I feel like the last time we left you or rather you left us at the university of waterloo you were doing you were going to go do your phd and do research what happened yeah that's that's exactly right yeah so when i first came to waterloo i think i was you know i was put under a spell by brian force who was a fantastic prof at waterloo and he kind of just made it seem so amazing and i wanted to follow in his footsteps And that's one of the main reasons I went into analysis, in fact, was because of Professor Forrest. So I sort of convinced myself that this would be the right path for me, was to continue in pure math and 
I think it's almost like a, an unwritten rule that if you're going to go into math, you have to get a PhD. And so I decided to continue with that. Uh, one of my supervisors told me to look into UBC for my PhD because there were two fantastic professors there, Isabella Laba and Malabika Pramanik. And so I reached out to them and I said, I'd, I'd be very interested in, in studying under you. And that's how I got into UBC. Uh, it wasn't until later that I discovered that, you know, the, the research stream isn't for everyone. And you can do some fantastic math without a PhD. And in fact, there are very prominent people who are amazing in the mathematical community who don't have PhDs. Would you say they're like outliers, though? Um, normally, you'd still need a PhD? Certainly. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking into, you know, hardcore mathematical research, then the PhD is the primary route to get there. And so you're absolutely right, Ifaz. I mean, the, there are outliers. Uh, I think there's a good reason for that because the PhD does prepare you very well for research level mathematics. You go through really deep courses, but at the same time, you go through the idea of how to do pure math. So you spend many years going through really hard problems and in a collaborative effort with other people trying to get through this. And that really sets you up for what I have seen as what you should be doing in research level math. Okay, so walk us through this. You're doing, you're in the midst of doing your PhD and you're starting to realize that this isn't necessarily for you. What happens next? So this was about two years into my PhD that I just saw everything was, it was stressful and I wasn't really getting the insight that I thought I would be getting. And I just wasn't getting as much enjoyment out of it that I know a lot of my peers were getting. So. At that point, I realized that research level math isn't really the path for me. At the exact same time, at UBC, they have a very strong teaching faculty. And in my first two years, I got really in, uh, involved with the teaching side of things. So I was very involved with the uh, graduate TA training program where new TAs coming in would have to learn how to teach effectively. And uh, I eventually took that over at the UBC and that kind of started my career into teaching. Now, I mean, I've always been really interested in teaching ever since a very young child. I think about grade four or five, I was always interested in helping people and, and professing my love for math, essentially. But it wasn't until my second year of UBC that I thought this could actually be a career. I could, I could actually teach as, as a living. I don't have to do research level math as my job. And so that's when I started exploring adult education. So really post-secondary mathematics education. I took a course at UBC on how to do exactly this, and I had lots of great mentors there. So you didn't do the teaching degree at Waterloo, right? That's right. Yeah, there's a five-year teaching degree option at Waterloo, and I regret not doing that because it would have added only one extra year to my undergrad, and it would have given me more flexibility, I think, with how to use my math degree. Uh, I chose not to because at the time, I always thought teaching would be a side thing. It would never be my career. I would never need a teaching degree. So it would seem like a waste of time to me, but in hindsight, it would have saved me a year because the teaching degree in Alberta took two years to finish instead of one. Okay, so you love to talk about math, so do we. That's part of the reason why we're all here. But you once told us a really great story about trying to teach seven-year-old kids about prime numbers. Yes. <laughs> When I first started teaching at Renner School, uh, I didn't really have a good sense of how to teach children because I've never had experience with it before. I had just finished teaching at UBC for two years. Uh, I was just starting to teach undergrad students at, at uh, U of C, 
And at this time, I was actually working at UFC as a sessional instructor at the same time as teaching at Rennert School for uh, these young students. And so I would go from teaching these seven-year-old students at Renner School and then going to the university and teaching a fourth-year cryptography course. And it was that mental gymnastics of going from one type of student to another type that I wasn't ready for. And so I was, I was teaching primes to my seven-year-olds who I don't know why they're learning primes, but I thought it'd be fun because, I mean, I just love math. And uh, one day I taught them about primes and prime factorizations. And then the next day I said, okay, now let's start talking about the number of factors a number can have. Who remembers prime factorizations? <laughs> Which was no one, of course. And then I got a little upset with my students. I said, we just did this yesterday. How can you forget what primes are? And I had a talking to about the fact that they are seven. They do need a little bit of time. This is very advanced material. And yeah, it was just a very interesting juxtaposition between what I expected from my seven-year-olds compared to the 22-year-olds I was teaching at the university. Do you remember being seven? I have no memory. I, I don't remember. I, I mean, I think the earliest memories I have of math in school was probably around grade three or four. So yeah, it's in hindsight, it's like, well, of course, they're not going to be able to recall everything I did in the previous class. Right. So it's it's one of those things where I'm sure it was just me. You know, a lot of people, they, they have the, the foresight to think about what other kids are like. But wh whatever the reason was, for me, it was very difficult to switch gears so abruptly. And so it led for some uh, interesting perspectives that my class had from me. Do you have a favorite age group right now? Ooh, that's a good question. It kind of varies, you know. Um, I, I really like teaching the older kids because uh, then I can really get into some deep material. So a few years back, uh, I taught my Division 3, 4 would be grades uh, 7 to 12. And I taught this group of kids why pi was irrational. And this was fantastic. It took us about an hour or so to go through it. And it was pretty heavy in the calculus. So it was nice to be able to do that. But at the same time, my younger kids were fantastic as well. It was it was such a pleasure to talk about, I don't know, things like what are big numbers? Like where do big numbers come from for, for little, little kids? So we eventually got into like Graham's number and uh, tree three and things like that. Uh, they had no idea what it was, but it was a lot of fun to talk about numbers that they've only heard of before. You know, what is a Googleplex and how small that is compared to other numbers? So this would have been about grade four or five. Two years ago, no, two or three years ago, I worked with kindergarten students, and that was so much fun. They, they're so energetic, and they're so much fun to be around. Uh, they find pleasure in the smallest things, which was just amazing. Like, when I told them that you can multiply by nine by just multiplying by ten instead and subtracting one copy, their minds were blown. I'm like, that's, you know, that kind of energy and that excitement for math is what yeah. I want from all my students. That's awesome. I um, it's funny because I have I have like two sets of memories of you. I think one is from an energy perspective, you teaching everyone how to parkour. <laughs> so if there's anyone that can keep up with a five year old, it is definitely you. And um, one of my favorite memories of you that stands out for me was the day, uh, the PMC our club we used to do the short attention span math seminars SASMs and my favorite talk that you ever did it had to be 25 maybe 30 <laughs> minutes in length is I think you did 30 proofs of Pythagorean theorem in 30 minutes yes that was uh that's another favorite memory of mine as well 
I think I bit off more than I could chew. <laughs> back on that. <laughs> I just you remember know. having. I I can't remember who was doing what, but like Victor and Vicky, one before in front of you, one behind. Someone's erasing a proof, yes. and someone's trying to write up the next one frantically so that you didn't have to slow down. Uh, yes, that that was fun. Uh, <laughs> definitely a high energy one. Uh, I've tried to replicate that with my students, and uh, it didn't go as well as it did in Waterloo. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> I wish I really wish that those were that was one of the things that we had actually recorded. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but you have kids now, and so I'm curious, like, how, you know, what is your how has your perception changed with the boys? And you know, is there anything that kids have wrong or think about what math is that you see on a day to day? Uh, not really from my kids' perspective. I do find that in general, the concept of what math is all about is skewed in the public perception. So the general public, you know, when I tell them that I'm a mathematician and I did a PhD in math, they're like, okay, quick, what's 56 times 183? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> you know, like 13. this is yeah. the most common thing. Uh, and it's this huge emphasis on arithmetic and mental math. Or uh, maybe if you, maybe it's not mental math, but they might be like, oh, I bet you learned calculus, right? And I'm like, okay, well, not, I see you've listened not, to her first episode. <laughs> that's not really what math is all about. But no, you know, with my kids, I, I think that I would like to say that they view math very differently. And so it's kind of funny if you talk to my oldest, my seven-year-old Calvin, and you ask him what math is about. He says, math is about learning and having fun. That's what math is. Wow. I'm like, well, yeah, sure. That's that's more about learning in general. And, you know, it's hard to say if he's parroting something and, and just like repeating what I'm saying or if he actually internalizes it. Uh, but I don't get that sense from my kids that math is about arithmetic. They don't really see that. But I mean, of course they wouldn't because I would never have told them that. And in fact, I would do everything in my power to dissuade them from thinking in this way. Right. So if someone at school would say, I'm so good at math, I can multiply these numbers. I'm like, okay, that's not math. <laughs> I mean, it's great, you know, and, and we do have a huge emphasis of mental math uh, at the school, but for different reasons. It's not because that's for math. It's because it's a good exercise for developing the brain. It's That's it. it would, we don't make any illusions that, you know, this is what you need to do to be a good mathematician. Okay. So what about, what are your thoughts on nature versus nurture when it comes to a love or hatred of mathematics? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think there's a little bit of both. And I say that because I know of friends of my son who in their family, one kid is really into math and the other kid is really not into math. So it's interesting. And even in the school where I've seen twins, so, you know, genetically speaking, they should be the same. Uh, and somehow they're a little bit different. So what happens? Well, I mean, every kid is going to be different. Even if you have the same home environment, even if the same genetics, things are going to work out a little bit different because every single choice that they make in their life is going to affect them slightly differently. And so I don't really buy into the fact that some kids are quote unquote good at math naturally versus others. I also don't think that it's necessarily possible for anyone to be good at math. So it's kind of a little mixture of both, which is, I guess, paradoxical. Uh, but what I what I mean by that is you... I don't like the idea when they say, you can do anything if you try hard enough, you know, because then they say something like, oh, yeah, you could be more, you could be more yeah. influential than Terrence Tao if you just work hard. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. But at the same time, I don't think that there is any reason to say something like, well, I'm not good at math because I was born that way. I think that there's a basic level of math that anyone can attain. 
But at the same time, there are going to be some people who are more naturally attuned to math. Maybe not their ability, but maybe just like the amount of energy they have to expend to understand something or to work with something. Uh, I definitely get the sense that some kids are more willing to put the time in. And that could be just part of the nature of who they are rather than how they were raised. Because again, I, I see siblings where one child is very interested in doing more math, whereas the other one is not. So why is that happening? Uh, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know. But it definitely seems like a mixture of the two for me. Uh, if my brother said he wants to do math, I would never have done a math degree. <laughs> <laughs> so that's interesting. I mean, like, I wonder if, if like, just the fact that someone is into something, that puts pressure on you to not do something. I mean, I definitely get that sense of some kids rebelling against parents to not do the thing that they wanted them to do. So who's to say if that's the reason why? You also hit on another one of like our pet peeves, which is this idea that you can be anything you want. And it's like, actually, no, there's literally physical limitations as to whether or not you're going to become an astronaut, yeah. <laughs> you know. And so not that we want to discourage people from, you know, pursuing their dreams. But I also had a best friend who for like three years told her parents she wanted to be a duck when she grew up. So, yeah, I, you know, <laughs> to me, I don't see it as discouraging. If anything, I think it's actually better because... I'm just thinking about, imagine there's a person who, for whatever reason, they find it very difficult to do something. Let's, let's, choose, uh, let's choose running for an example. Okay, so maybe they have some kind of physical limitation. And if their goal is to be the fastest sprinter in the world, that might be difficult, especially considering if people are constantly telling them, you can do it if you try hard enough. And so you can imagine this person, they say, I'm not trying hard enough because I'm just not fast enough. That must be the reason. So what I view it as, as uh, they can do some version of what they want to do. If they want to run, they can do a version of that. They might not be the fastest sprinter without modifications, but they can still compete in races. And so they just have to change that. And so what I like about this approach is that it doesn't put all the blame on them. You know, they're not the fastest in the world. It must be their fault. They're not trying hard enough. I don't think that's the case. So Vince, you've been teaching for a while. Um, are there any techniques that you use to make math more fun? That's a good question. I think that it really depends on the students because each person is going to view math a little bit differently. But what I find works most of the time is engaging them in play. So I really love games and puzzles and challenges and things like that. And I frequently incorporate them into my classes and also with teaching my own kids. So I think that keeping math more whimsical and having this element of fun and play definitely makes it more interesting for them. And I think there's a fine balance for it. So there are times and places where we'll have games. And typically for my younger students from grades one to six, I will have a games day roughly once a week where we focus on some kind of mathematical idea without them really knowing it. And so there's lots of different things that can be engaged through play that's not strictly mathematical in other senses, but I kind of like that. So, you know, just playing something like uh, like werewolf can be very interesting because you have some idea of game theory involved and you kind of embed that within the, the game and the class. And that kind of makes math a lot more fun. I also really like the idea of making math just challenging enough to push students out of their comfort zone, which makes it pretty fun for those looking for that challenge. So rather than sticking to some old curriculum standards or things like that, 
I really look forward to seeing how far I can push things. And so what ends up happening is that I get a lot of students who start getting interested in some really deep area of math, which they might not have been otherwise. Vince, I know you've been a really big uh, supporter and uh, you send me a lot of really great puzzles sometimes. So we'll make sure to include a couple of your favorites in, in the show notes for anyone who wants to look those up. Uh, and uh, one more piece. What piece of advice would you give our listeners that have their own kids about fostering maybe a love of mathematics? I would say not to push them too hard. And I, you know, I, I've seen the situation happen where some parents say, okay, well, I want to know math. So you have to go into Kumon and like practice dozens of worksheets a day. And I don't think that's the right approach. Uh, I think that we have to respect our children's wishes. And what we're trying to do is give them the essence of what is really fundamental at math. Things like problem solving, communication skills, critical thinking, these kinds of ideas are much more fundamental to math, in my opinion. So rather than trying to push them to memorize their multiplication table, they should have some fun with the core concepts behind mathematics rather than individual skills. It's interesting how those skills you mentioned are the top skills every organization since the beginning of mankind is looking for in their next hire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it, it, for, for good reason, right? I mean, these are transferable skills that are useful in pretty much any field. And that's kind of why you learn math is because a lot of these kind of concepts are useful, even if you're not going to be a mathematician. We always have this talk with my students at the beginning of the year about why do we learn math if you're not going to be a mathematician? If you want to be a biologist, do you really need math? If you want to be a basketball player, do you really need math? And so we discuss these ideas of how we can have these transferable skills. And that's one, one reason why we do all this work. All right, let's end it right there. We could talk for a few more hours if we continue. <laughs> but I have so many more questions. <laughs> Private versus public school, the math competition world. Uh, but uh, I guess we're going to have to save those all for another day. Um, Vincent, thank you so much for joining us today. I know that there was quite a few interesting tidbits, especially for other teachers and anyone who's uh, trying to get a little bit more math in their lives with their kids as well. And so thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was a real pleasure and I hopefully can come back some other time. Yeah, absolutely. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Aftermath, our very first guest episode on the podcast for Mathies. If you have more ideas or tips and tricks on how to get your kids interested in mathematics or stories that you want to share from your childhood, please reach out to us at hello at after-math.ca or DM us on any one of our social channels. We're at after underscore math underscore cast on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Sarah Sun. I'm Vincent Chan. And I'm Ifaz Kabir. See you next time on Aftermath.